Good evening. Welcome to the Hirshhorn Museum. I'm Kelly Gordon, co-curator of the exhibition Days of Endless Time with Mika Yoshitake. Days of Endless Time was conceived as an experience rather than a didactic exhibition. And we were looking for a way to expand what viewers might take away from the show. The encyclopedic approach of Lapham's Quarterly makes the perfect companion publication, and we salute and thank Lewis and his group, especially David Rose and Tim Doan, for taking on our parallel universe and for sharing our exploration of time. Friends who know me well accuse me of having developed this exhibition as an excuse to meet Lewis Lapham <laughs> and to connect to the always splendid Quarterly. But I promise that wasn't the only reason for the show. As many of you know, his legacy extends from 13 books, ranging from Money and Class in America to The Wish for Kings, to his 30-year-long tenure at Harper's Magazine, to a documentary titled America's Ruling Class, to his engaging podcasts on new books for Bloomberg News, to his dazzling reputation as an essayist and lecturer, and of course, Lapham's Quarterly. The New York Times likened Lewis Lapham to H.L. Mencken. Vanity Fair suggested a resemblance to Mark Twain, and no less than Tom Wolfe compared him to Montaigne, but I beg to differ. There is simply no one else like Lewis Lapham. From the first discussion for this volume over lunch, we were dizzied by the range and the depth of his knowledge and imagination to the thrill of opening this volume developed with his sterling team this has been a wondrous project that not only reinforced, that reinforced what I've known for so long. Lewis Lapham is an extraordinary American national treasure. So it is with great pleasure that we welcome him to the Smithsonian. For tonight's discussion, he's also enlisted Jay Griffiths, author of A Sideways Look at Time, which won the Discover Award for Best New Nonfiction Writer published in the US. Her second book was Wild, An Elemental Journey, and it was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize and a World Book Day Award and won the inaugural 2007 Orion Book Award. Her third book, A Country Called Childhood, published by Counterpoint, will be available next month. Welcome, Jay. We also have tonight Jim Holt. Jim Holt writes regularly for the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, the London Review of Books, and is a cultural commentator for BBC Radio, and I learned tonight does not have a cell phone, so he is our emissary for the unplugged, which is what the show is about. His 2012 book, Why Does the World Exist? An Existential Detective Story, was a National Book Critics Circle Award finalist for nonfiction, and it was named one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review. He's currently at work, without his cell phone, on a book about free will, weakness of will, rationality, self-deception, and happiness. I hope the last two aren't to be put together. Jim Holt's academic background, however, is as a mathematician but perhaps he's best known for his regular contributions to The New Yorker, and he's written on such topics as string theory, time, infinity, numbers, humor, logic, 
truth, and another timeless topic, especially in Washington, bullshit. <laughs> Without further ado, please welcome tonight's panelists to our stage. Their discussion will be followed by a Q&A session and book signing. Thank you. Well, that, Kelly, that's a magnificent uh, introduction, and I'm humbled by it. But the, it was Kelly's idea that the quarterly do the, an issue on time. And it's been a true joy to try to put it together. I mean, people have been asking what time is for thousands of years, and there are no clear or definitive answers. Aristotle, in 330 BC, asks if time past is no more and time future not yet, then time is undoubtedly of the essence, but the essence of time is neither here nor there. It's like God or Peter Rabbit, it's a work of man's imagination. And in this issue of the quarterly, we have writers from across the last three, 4,000 years, across cultures, talking about their imagination of time, how they conceive it. So it could be Marshall McLuhan, or Stephen Hawking's, or Goethe, or Gibbon, Shakespeare. I mean, the contributors to this issue are all of them wonders to behold. And there are the two people that I have on the stage this evening are among the chief wonders in, in the issue. Jay Griffiths, writing about time from the way she sees it and conceives it, and Jim Holt. And their essays in, in this quarterly are on the same plane as Aristotle. Wow. <laughs> That's a good gag line. I, I mean, You're set if, for if, a disappointment. If, 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 if Kelly can go over the top with me, I can go over the top with, 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 you, with you and with Jay. So, but Jay, let me start with you and the, uh, your book, A Sideways Look at Time, and talk about time as, uh, explain why Benjamin Franklin was wrong and time is not money. Okay. <laughs> the, um, when I was writing my book, I began with this powerful, powerful sense that um, when you think about time, it's, it's one of the crudest things to do to say time is money. And then I was thinking, well, what is it? You know, and then a lot of people were saying, well, it's clocks, isn't it? And I was going, no, no. It's a bit like looking at a landscape. And you've got kind of, you know, mountains and rivers and things like that and saying, okay, what this landscape is, is kilometers and miles and meters and measurements. That's not a landscape. 
and it's and that's you know a clock is a measurement of time, but in a sense, it's the opposite of time. So what I was looking for was much more how time is, how it's understood, how a huge variety of different cultures understand it, and that this idea of kind of time is money is such a mean-minded way of looking at that whole beautiful expanse. You can go on. I mean, I a, a lot. A lot <laughs> How true. A lot, a lot of the way you think about it is the way that the exhibition here is, it, it's set up. I mean, I was, as you will see, if you see the exhibition, it has the sense of time as a being in and of itself. I mean, there's a difference between measurement of time, which we know how to to do down to the tiniest fraction of a second. But then again, there's the perception and the passage of time. And then that is where the imagination is at work. Where, Jim, today are the physicists in terms? I understand that they don't concede the flow of time, but they rather think that it's a timescape in which everything is there in an eternal present. Where are the physicists? Well, the, the last I looked, they were in the Canary Islands. I was in the Canary Islands just a couple of weeks ago with some of the great cosmologists and physicists and astrophysicists in the world, including Stephen Hawking. Uh, and one of the most fraught, debated, vexed issues was the nature of time. Um, and by, by the way, before this uh, uh, presentation was convened, uh, we were lucky enough to get a, a, a tour through the um, exhibit upstairs uh, with uh, uh, one of the, the co-curators, Yoshi, uh, I'm sorry. Mika. Mika, Mika, Mika Yoshitake. And uh, the contrast between the depiction of the subjective flow of time in these artworks and the, uh, the, the, the physical theories, the, the you know, state of the art uh, notion of time that we, that we have now in the uh, beginning of the 21st century is really astonishing. I mean, they have nothing to do with one another. The most, uh, the most powerful you know, impression that we all have in our existence is of time passing, time fleeting. Uh, a physicist will uh, have a very different picture of it. And it's really interesting, you know, when the, um, uh, Jay, uh, you, in your book, the, uh, the, the notion of time that you, you tend to see in other civilizations, in, in sort of, you know, pre-scientific civilizations, let us say, is one in, in which time is very much part of the texture of, of the natural world. It's about things that are rhythmic and things that are cyclic and seasons returning and so forth. And it's interesting that you know, at the beginning of the scientific revolution, which more or less characterizes um, Western culture and technology, Isaac Newton came up with this very um, weirdly pristine view of time. And he said uh, in his Principia, uh, it's great scientific work, True, true absolute mathematical time, in itself and of its own nature, flows equably without relation to anything external. So Newton, in a sense, took time out of the natural world and made it into a kind of you know, cosmic grandfather clock that, that is, you know, transcends the natural world. Um, 
So that was the way scientists thought about time until the 20th century, when Einstein came along. And, and, and as we, I'm sure you've all studied uh, theoretical physics, and so I won't bore you with details, but essentially Einstein said, you know, there's one, the, the one constant thing in nature is the speed of light, okay? And to, the, the, the way to make the speed of light the same for all observers is to mix space and time in such a way that they both become elastic. And the result is that mass equals energy. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, a huge conceptual breakthrough and a revolution in our notion of time. So with Einstein, time is not this, you know, uh, it's not part of the stage of the world, it's part of the cast of reality. It's an, it's an ingredient of the world, it's a thing. Um, also, Einstein uh, showed uh, that in, in his, the theory of special relativity that there's no absolute distinction between past, present, and future, and there's no universal now. If, I, if, I, if you ask me, you know, what's going on right now uh, on Alpha Centauri, a star many light years from here, there's no fact of the matter about that. It depends on whether you're walking one way or walking the other way or seated in a stationary way. Just in, in making those motions, the moment that corresponds to now on Alpha Centauri can jump ahead or, or behind by a matter of days. Okay, so this is, this is you know, sort of all very puzzling stuff, but the conclusion is that you get from physics is that there's no, there's no flowing of time. The past, present, and future are all equally real. You know, we tend to think the past happened, it's fixed, but it's, it's no longer with it, it's sort of lost. The present is certainly real. The future is kind of hazy and maybe not determined and maybe open and maybe we can affect the future in a way we can't affect the past. So the Einsteinian revolution you know, throws that common sense, intuitive notion of time aside and says, no, it's all objectively real, past, present, and future. We're living in this sort of frozen timescape or block universe and all moments are equally real. So this moment seems very real now, but the moment when you were a child is just as real, and the moment when this whole sad conversation is over, which will be a great moment of relief for all of you, is equally real. And they all sort of exist, you know, they're all part of this timeless reality. And so the weird thing about that, as you pointed out, is that it's completely, it completely goes against our sense of live time, and the sense that we're all being sort of rushed towards our, our graves. Um, and we're, 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 you know, we're running out of time. There's not enough time. So uh, yeah, it's a big, and so physicists, you know, the more reflective uh, of, of the tribe want to you know, reconcile these two. There's some kind of missing link between the timeless block universe and our subjective sense of flowing time, and if only someone could find that missing link. But also the modern world is, attrib is attributed to the clock. Lewis Mumford said that the, the invention that makes the modern world is not the printing press or the steam engine, it's the clock. And it's what ties uh, time to power. And, and Jay, you've thought a lot about the authority of the clock. The Huron Indians were taught by the French missionaries to refer to the clock as captain clock in which they were to see the face of God. And the Christian sense of time is also a way of trying to link time to power. And you 
uh, take issue with that? Well, what I do is, is um, very much note it. The whole of my book is about um, the way that uh, time is a very political issue. Um, so, for example, when you have um, Pol Pot declaring 1975 year zero, when you've got the French revolutionaries saying that, um, that 1789 was year one, you've got this amazing sense of kind of people who want to take power partly take power of land and they also take power in empires of time. When the ancient Chinese um, emperors had colonized some new area, the phrase they used, it was very sinister and very telling, they said the area had received the calendar. Um, and that idea of the kind of, you know, the, the quite a sort of um, astonishing kind of metaphysical seizure of power over something was I thought incredibly wittily satirised by um, a group of protesters, environmental protesters in Britain a few years back, who made this um, manifesto for themselves, which uh, included saying, uh, "We um, we believe we believe in no hierarchies except the hierarchy of dog worship. Our, our, our currency is known as the quag barter system, <laughs> and uh, we declare that this." This day shall be known as one. Be afraid, all ye that here respect this state. And it was that sense of, you know, yes, they were talking about it jokingly, but actually power and power and, and time have gone together in the most extraordinary way. Um, one of the examples that I, I, I find myself both you know, really kind of quite revolted by, but also amused by, is Robinson Crusoe, which was a book I loved reading when I was a child. But when I reread it as an adult, what I saw was the way that um, he has a skirmish with the slave with the slave trade. So he's a failed slave trader. Turns up on this island. He surveys his land, and then he makes his enclosures upon it, in his words, and then he encloses time by making his calendars, making his schedules, and then, of course, he takes Man Friday, names him after his own calendar, and tells Man Friday that he is to refer to Crusoe as master. That kind of language of master and slave has also a very interesting history in Greenwich, which um, obviously you can tell from my accent that uh, I come from over the pond. And um, one of the one of the things that, um, that 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 in our not always great history, the, when the British declared that Greenwich Mean Time was going to be basically the of, you know, the ruler of time across the world. It was, of course, because we ruled the oceans. We ruled the oceans from the, the first accurate timekeeping and clocks. But one of the things that's not very often noted is that um, when the first clocks were set up in Greenwich, there was a master clock in Greenwich which sent out signals to what they called slave clocks. Um, beyond Greenwich at London Bridge and elsewhere. And it was this sense of kind of this was how the slave trade also um, was ha had its fount of power in that sense of Britons ruling the oceans through time. So it's like this time power thing. And you can see it even in the smallest of ways. I, I will pause in a moment. <laughs> you can see it even in the smallest of ways. You go to a restaurant, there's a waiter 
the status of the person who's waiting at the table is very low because their time is not as important as yours if you're the customer. VIPs, we know, they're always sped through. They don't have to, have to wait in line. The kind of, you know, the class of speed attends status. So in all of those kind of ways, I'd say there's a, there's a very strong link between time and power. Well, and, and people can be in, truly enslaved to time. I mean, there are, there is, for example, in this issue of the quarterly, there's a talk about how the warehouse workers are organized uh, within Walmart and Amazon, and they have to move uh, at a particular speed uh, throughout the day. They're always, always on the clock. And if at any point they fall six minutes behind the, the uh, schedule laid out for them, they can be fired. And, and this, this idea come, begins with something called Taylorism, which comes in around the turn of the 20th century. A Philadelphia gang boss wrote a book on scientific management that became uh, almost a biblical text among American factory owners and, and, and railroad barons. But it, it, so often, the uh, uh, one's time is not owned by oneself, it is owned by a machine. And you, Jay, have spent time uh, with people outside the margins of our globalized uh, imperial economy. I mean, you, with the native peoples in Australia and in New Guinea and the Amazon. And their sense of time is not in terms of measurement, it's in terms of uh, experience. Time, time has a, a quality. It, it's the same way that Hesiod in, in ancient Greece, uh, well before the invention of the clock, talks about particular days or particular times of day having their own uh, being. Yes, yes. I mean, one of the, one of the examples that I'd give um, is an example on the surface, probably all familiar with what, what's called the dream time in uh, indigenous Australia. But one of the things about that is that it's quite often perceived as if it was just the past, but it isn't. It's like a kind of, it's like a sort of envelope of time around the present. It's like a deepening of the present into the past. So the, the past is kind of, you know, the past is in the land. It's not dead, it's not behind you, it's under your feet. And there was one time I was in London and I was really thinking about this and I was trying to think, you know, could I, could I really try just for a second to feel what that felt like. And, and, I, and I was cycling, and so I just got off my bike, and I was just standing on the pavement. I must have looked like a real idiot. I just stood on the pavement, and I was thinking, for just a second, yes. Because of course, it's like that's where everything goes, is down into the ground and burial in archaeology. And that sense of the importance of the past as something which sustains the present, that it's not kind of, you know, like gone and behind us and cut off and, and sort of significantly dead. It's actually something whereby the deep past can sustain the present, and the present can also sustain that sense of deep past through ritual, through 
through memory. And to me, it was it was almost it, it was one of the exceptional things was this idea that the past could be a living thing, which is one of the reasons why, for a lot of indigenous cultures, the idea of taking oil or any kind of mining from from the land is really abhorrent because that's the you know that's the blood of the earth and all these things they sound like kind of hippie cliches but they they're deeply deeply believed in the sense of that you know that this is the wholeness of the earth and that is its that is its life and you jim you don't have a cell phone and you refuse to have a cell phone and i can understand but in part uh, there's some of that same suspicion. I, I take it. I mean, no. I, I actually, I, my my failure to possess a cell phone is not a matter of principle. I, I've simply never found the plan that's right for me. Um, <laughs> no, but, yeah, but that, there's also yeah, a way. In, yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm pompous in in, in in many ways, but not you know, my having a cell phone. That's a contingent thing about it. It's not okay. part of my identity. Right. But I, I want to go back to something that she she talked about Pol Pot and the year zero which I think is a fascinating idea because it, it, it implies a beginning to time. And when you think about it, you know, the, 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 they're been competing, actually, am I preempting your question or? Uh, no, 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 no. So, I mean, they're competing uh, ideas of, of, of time versus e eternity. Uh, the, the, in the uh, Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition, time is something that, you know, God exists in eternity, outside of time. God is timeless. And at some finite time in the past, he brought this universe into existence. So um, the, the universe, like us, is, has a finite past. It ha hasn't always existed. The competing scientific view of the universe uh, that was shared by uh, Aristotle, uh, Galileo, and Einstein is that, no, no, it's eternal. It's always been there. And it, it, it had no beginning, therefore there's no need of a, uh, a god-like entity to bring the world into existence out of nothing. Yeah, you all know how, how the story, right? In the beginning there was nothing and God said, let there be light. And there was still nothing, but now you could see it. <laughs> thank you for, I, I, thank you for the, the pity laugh. Uh, <laughs> took me all morning to write that joke. So um, then in the 20th century, uh, a Belgian priest named Georges uh, Lemaitre uh, worked out a solution to Einstein's uh, equations of general relativity that implied that the universe was not static, it was expanding. Okay, it's getting bigger. So if you play the tape backward, it's getting smaller, and at some finite point in the past, everything that we see around us was compressed into a geometrical point, which Lemaitre called the primeval atom. So this looks very much like the Islamic, the Christian Islamic, Judeo-Christian Islamic notion of, of the world of, you know, of time coming into existence. And, and suddenly it presented scientists, physicists with a problem. If the universe burst into existence at a finite time of the past, and the best estimate of that is 3.8 billion years ago, then what caused that event? Was there some cause outside of time that is responsible for it? Could have been an, an uncaused event? Did the universe somehow bring itself into existence? So um, suddenly there's, there was a, you know, a collision between the old kind of you know, secular scientific view of time as something that doesn't have a beginning and the more uh, religiously infused notion of time that does come into existence you know, out of a background of eternity. 
which is quite interesting. By the way, the good news is, I mean, we're all, you know, there's a slightly gloomy cast to this conversation. You know, we're all being hastened toward, towards our deaths, and we're, we're slaves of time, and if, especially if we work for Walmart and so forth. The good news is that the universe is 13.8 billion years old, which seems a lot older than any of us, right? So, in, in fact, if you, if you measure things in the right way, we're almost as long-lived as the universe. So how many, so the universe has existed for about 10 to the 17 seconds. That doesn't, that doesn't sound like such an intimidatingly large number. All of you will exist for around a billion seconds. Actually, more like three times, a, uh, three billion seconds, if you live to 100, approximately. Okay, so a billion seconds, you know, compared to 10 to the 17 seconds, it seems like a very small uh, fraction of the universe's existence. However, the universe has a sort of built-in uh, clock that ticks very fast, and each tick takes 10 to the minus 43 seconds. I hope you're all writing this down in your copybook, because these are terribly important numbers. So, how many, the universe has existed for 10 to the 60th ticks We've ex of, the, of this clock. We've existed, will exist for about 10 to the 52 ticks of the clock. So in a sense, we're all, we last almost as long as the universe does, which is, which is I think, very hard. <laughs> On the other hand, we're actually, we're actually very tiny. If you, if, you look, if, if you look at the natural measure of how big we should be, we should actually be not you know, approximately two meters uh, in length, but we should, exist, we should stretch from the sun to the Andromeda galaxy. So the, the message from physics is that we're, uh, we're very, very long-lasting by cosmic standards, but very long-lasting, but very tiny which actually sounds as though it invites a sex joke, but I'm not gonna make that. I think I should shut up now. <laughs> but time also, you know, time can live, one can live in the past. I mean, the past is in the present. I mean, that could be memory, that can be dream, that can be uh, imagination, that can, words on paper, can live for many, many years. I mean, that's Shakespeare's point. Breathe life in this, and this breathes life in thee. And so... Yeah, Woody that, Allen said, I, I, I want the kind of immortality that means not dying. It's a cheat. But there is a difference. Actually, Woody but, Allen was quite good on time. He also said... Uh, but, but Jay, talk about the difference. With, I mean, there is public time, and there is private time, and those are, those are different... Sorry. So I finished my Woody Allen line. <laughs> and then I, and then but, I will but, talk about but you also have a, you also have a chapter in your book. I mean, Jim talks about measurements of time and lengths, and, and uh, but you talk about passage and perception of time. Yeah. And you also in your book you talk about how time is different for a man and for a woman. Yeah. How, how does that follow? Okay. I'm really not allowed to tell my Woody Allen joke. It's <laughs> I'll a copyright it. issue. Um. <laughs> what, um, yes, what I was partly looking at in, in my book was this sense of um, if culture is using time politically, how does that fit in a kind of gender 
sense? And is there a difference in sort of how women and men experience time? I mean, one of the things seems to me really obvious is that, you know, that, that for us women, our experience of our own biological time is clearly more cyclical because of menstruation. But it was also something which was making me think, actually, it's also one of the great put-downs by a sexist society is to say that, you know, la donare mobile, that we're changeable and that this is a bad thing. Um, and that also that, you know, that, that women's work is something which is cyclical in a negative sense. It's repetitive. So the traditional kind of women's jobs of teaching and nursing and motherhood are things where, you know, you're treating the same illness over and over again. You're educating the same eight-year-olds over and over again. Um, there's a lovely thing Joan Rivers said about housework. She said, I hate housework. You make the beds, you do the dishes, and six months later you have to do it all over again. <laughs> but that sense of sort of, you know, gender Genderized work, unlike the kind of more typical man's work, which is to do the kind of, you know, the one-off kind of, you know, more substantial, more lasting, more changeless things in the domestic sense. It's like, you know, that, that typically it's the woman who washes up over and over and over again. It's the man who makes the shed just once. It's brilliant. Everyone congratulates him on it. So I was looking at time like that, and I was also looking at the way that the most patriarchal of our religions have always wanted to see time as linear and actually with a real ferocity to see time as linear. More earth-based religions have wanted very much to see the cyclical nature of time within the earth. So it was from a whole series of things like that that um, that I was looking, and also at the way that, you know, that any of us here who have children will, I mean, I say us, I have 10 children, but they're not actually mine. Um, the, 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 when, um, when you say to a child, you know, it's late, we have to hurry up, we've got to get to school, you know, that daily, daily, daily mantra. And a child is so absorbed in this present moment of kind of trying to get that piece of chewing gum into that crack in the wall that they don't want to move. Or that feeling of sort of, you know, that, that a child's present lasts so long, and it actually does, it lasts so much longer than ours because time to a child, an hour for a four-year-old, is an enormous space of time compared to an hour for one of us. Their sense of speed is very different. They can live in the fastest possible, like a, you know, like a raccoon kind of, like, you know, ricocheting around a tree, <laughs> bouncing by mistake, and then in the most incredible slowness of utter stoppedness, this absorption in the present. Um, and now I will get to my Woody Allen quote, which is that, and I will be quick, he did a speed reading course, Woody Allen said, and at the end of the speed reading course he said, it was absolutely brilliant, I read, read War and Peace in 20 minutes. It was about Russia. So sometimes speed, I think his point was, is not of the essence. Well, there, there is a, one of the pieces in the issue was William Faulkner, who makes the point that time, it's only when clocks stop. He's telling a story in, in which a young man breaks his watch and refuses to uh, repair it. It's only when the clock stops, either on a bar of music or in a field of play or in 
again, an absorption in, in a moment or an idea um, that, it, that it really comes alive. Paradox. But I think it can be said, Jim, and you will tell me whether I'm right or wrong, that, the, that over time, over the last, say, 3,000 years, the way uh, mankind, at least in the Western world, has viewed time has changed. I mean, it has evolved, right? I mean, do, does the ancient Greek or the Roman legionnaire think about time the same way that, that we do? And the answer, my guess is, is there's a difference. You think that's possible? Or do they all exist at the same time in the one frozen space? <laughs> Here's a uh, uh, amusing fact that I became aware of. Uh, I was talking to a physicist at this con conference in the Canary Islands on the philosophy of cosmology. And we were talking about um, traces of, uh, of, of the past that are all around us. In some sense, information is not lost. I mean, that's a, that's a theorem of physics. And that uh, all of the information that adds up to your particular selfhood, when you die, it, it's, it, it's, it seems to, as your brain decays your, or your brain is destroyed or vaporized or whatever, the information in the brain continues to exist unless it gets sucked into a black hole, but few of us will have this, this misfortune. So anyway, the, the, the interesting uh, factoid that this physicist mentioned is that when, um, I, 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 this is pure uh, word association because you mentioned a Roman legionnaire. Back in Roman times when um, uh, uh, potters would decorate uh, ceramic pottery, they would use a stylus and presumably while they're decorating the, you know, these, these artisans would have conversations while they're decorating the ceramic pots, and the vibration of the air caused by their voices would actually uh, uh, be transmitted by the stylus into the decorations in the pot. So with a proper reading device, something like a, photograph, a phonograph that could play a pot, you could actually recover the voices of these ancient Roman potters as they were making small talk while doing their artisanal work, which I, I found <laughs> uh, as the kids would say, that's very cool. Um, but, I, but so, um, I'm going to dodge your question in another way by asking, why are we not living in Roman times? Why do we happen to be living in the year 2014? Um, you know, you, all of us, uh, you know, for eons and eons, we, were, you know, we, weren't, we, we didn't exist, we weren't conscious, then suddenly we're sort of, we wake up into consciousness, and we live for a little while, and then we return to nothingness, or we go to heaven if we're very virtuous. So why, but why do we happen to exist now? Why aren't we living in Roman times? Why aren't we living a thousand years into the future? So that, that's a really interesting question. And if you, if you think of, um, think of the, you know, a, a cosmic urn that contains all of the people, all of the humans who will ever exist. Now, our numbers came up. We were picked out of this cosmic urn in the 20th century. Um, Suppose that humanity was going to go on, go, on, go on for a long, long time, for you know thousands or even millions of years. Suppose you know we, we don't wipe ourselves out on Earth. In fact, we uh, we develop technology that will enable us to set up colonies of other planets, and eventually we colonize the galaxy, 
and our descendants are going to be living not just on you know, the home planet, but on you know, hundreds or thousands of planets everywhere, and there will be you know, trillions of trillions of people in the future. Um, that, would, that, that, that means that we, our number came up sort of very early on in the existence of the species Homo sapiens. Um, you know, so how many, peop how many people have existed since the, the species came into existence? You know, roughly, you know, 50 billion, 40 or 50 billion, say 100 billion at the most. And right now, about 8 billion people are alive. So right at this very moment, about 10% of the people who have ever existed are actually alive. So the, the, the fact that we exist now, rather than back at Roman times, makes a little bit more sense in that light because actually, you know, a large proportion of the humans who have ever existed are alive right now. I mean, it's just like, you know, we're all from New York, Lewis and I are from New York, you know, why do we happen to live in New York? Well, New York is the biggest city and the third largest country in the uh, world, so it's not all that special to live in New York. So think about this just a little, push this just a little bit further. Um, so what if we're, you know, sort of at the very beginning of the species and, and, and there will be, you know, trillions of trillions of humans living in the future. That would make us, all the people in this room, among the very earliest humans in the, in the big scheme, scheme of things. We would be, you know, kind of like, statistically, kind of like Adam and Eve. That would make us very special. Now, it's unlikely, we all feel inwardly that we're special, but that's, a, that's an illusion. You're, you're not, we're all mediocre inwardly, but we, we like to treasure the idea that we're special. But if we're not special in the sense, the implication of this is that it's not very likely that humanity is going to go on for a long time and keep expanding in population. The most likely thing is that you know, within 100 or 200 years, uh, humanity will either wipe itself out or there'll be some sort of catastrophe and there'll be a, 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 a radical decrease in the population. So, you know, the, the, the upshot is 500 years from now, if, there are, if humans haven't destroyed themselves, it's unlikely that the, the population of the, of the globe will be, you know, will be, uh, the total population of humans will be, say, 100 billion or a trillion or anything like that. It'll probably be a small remnant of us, you know, living in caves and trying to, you know, recapture the technology that we've destroyed. So the, the, the upshot of this is that just by reasoning about why we exist now and looking at the numbers of humans who existed in the past and the present and who might exist in the future, we can arrive at a probable conclusion that there's going to be some sort of doom-like event in the near history of humanity. And by the near history, I don't mean, you know, necessarily in the next century, but in the next, you know, on the order of the next thousand years. So um, that was probably totally unintelligible to you, but if it was intelligible, you should be feeling very sort of sober and grave right now. Um, okay. But how Roman legionnaires felt about time, I have the foggiest notion. I wish I did. No, I know. I don't either, but I mean, it, but I have but no imaginative powers, so, so I can't even guess. No, but I mean, I mean, human attitude, human uh, approaches to the world, a human understanding um, evolves over time, does it not? Or does it, does it not? Yeah, I mean, I've, I keep company only with with uh, philosophers and physicists, and so this is a highly non-representative sampling of humanity. I mean, I, I don't know why I keep such low company, but uh, you know, they really, you know, they, they their thinking evolves. I mean, Stephen Hawking, uh, who uh, you know, uh, uh, his changes his mind about time every five years. He comes to a radically different conclusion. 
And just to give you, I mean, I, I'm not answering your question once again, but I'm talking, you know, about, you know. Well, nobody can answer the question, uh, Jim. I mean, I mean, that's that's the beautiful thing about this this issue, and the beautiful thing about the uh, uh, exhibition here that there are. There's no single answer to this. People have been asking these kinds of questions for a very long time, to pardon the expression, time. And, the, uh, and there's no uh, textbook answer. Yeah, I mean, the people who do it for a living, uh, philosophers who do metaphysics, uh, cosmologists and physicists, are at loggerheads on almost every fundamental question about time. Most of them believe that time has no intrinsic direction which is weird because it certainly seems to have a direction to us. We remember the past, we don't remember the future. Uh, the laws of physics are time symmetric, but there's some things, you know, so um, if you're looking at a, you know, two electrons bouncing off each other, if you play the film backwards, it looks just the same. However, there are a lot of uh, processes in our daily lives that look really ridiculous if you play them backwards. For instance, if you put an egg near the edge of a kitchen counter and it rolls off and it hits the, the floor with a splat. Now, if you play that backwards, what you see is a splat egg on the floor spontaneously jump off the floor, reassemble itself, and, and land on the, on the counter. You never see that in real life. However, it's physically perfectly possible I mean, what, when, the, when the egg falls off and hits the, the floor, the energy sort of dissipates into the molecules that make up your linoleum or whatever it is. It's perfectly possible that the, the molecules could, in concert, uh, vibrate in such a way as to push the egg off and it reassemble itself and land back on the uh, counter as a whole. But this, you never actually see this happen. Why is that? It's because of this great mystery that the universe began in a highly, highly, highly organized state. Um, this is a great mystery to physicists, why it should have begun in this very special state, uh, it, it, a very orderly state. And the re and, and the, the, but the reason, the, as a result of the, this very special beginning to the universe, uh, we're surrounded by, uh, you know, if you look out beyond the Earth, you see you, you don't see sort of a, uh, a, a mixture of, you know, sort of a homogenous world out there. You see little stars. I mean, they're very big when you get up close to them, but those sort are of little powerful hot objects in a very, very cold background. So the, the heavens are actually highly organized, and that's why we're able to survive on Earth, because, I mean, the, the sky is this little hot disk in the middle of an otherwise cold sky. So we get the organization that we get from the sun is what, you know, th through plants, which essentially eat the organized photons from the sun, and we survive from the plants. So we stave off entropy, which is this, you know, increasing disorder that ends, off, that ends in death, because we live in this, you know, under a very highly organized sky. So that's really, uh, that's interesting. So the point is that time does seem to have a direction but it's mysterious why the universe began in this very special state. And that's one of the thing, things that philosophers and, and physicists are all constantly arguing about. And also whether, you know, the, the whole issue of whether time does flow, almost all of them believe that the flow of time is an illusion. And the weird thing is that it's, it's an illusion of something that's an absurdity. I mean, we've all seen, you know, a if you put a stick in water, it appears to be bent. Okay, it's not really bent. But if it were bent, a bent stick is something that's, you know, a physical possibility. But, but our sense that time flows, you know, what does it mean to say something flows? That means that it changes over time.
but how can time itself change with respect to time? How fast does time flow? Well, the, the, you know, the, the only possible answer is it flows at the rate of one second per second, which is absurd. So you know, the, the, the thing that's most crucial to our existence, the, fact, you know, the, the, the feeling that we're being pushed forward in time, that time is fleeting, that time flows, seems to be an illusion. And it's the illusion of something that when you pay, when you try to analyze it, is an absurdity. And so this is what, you know, this is what physicists and philosophers who think about this, you know, they're, they're very, very bright and they think about this for a living. There's no consensus really at all. So uh, if you're confused about it, you, you can join some very excellent company. <laughs> well, I, I, I certainly had that feeling assembling this issue of, of, of the quarterly, but the, but the flow of time is something that you, Jay, are, uh, feel very intensely. I mean, not only in, in, in your own person, but in, in terms of the seasons. I mean, you, you, you talk, a, there's a line in Shakespeare somewhere that, where he says there's no clock in the forest. And you point out quite the contrary. The, the, the forest is, is a, is full a, of a gong. And, and talk about that. I mean, how many different flows and measurements and, and feelings of time Yes, yes. The, that, um, when I was thinking about that, that lovely line, there's no clock in the forest, it's like there is no clock in the forest, but the forest is absolutely full of time, is that when you get that little flash of a kingfisher down a riverbank, um, or when you get the kind of, you know, the really, really slow time of a tree growing, or the time of... Um, the ripeness of an apple, I, I don't know if you know the pippin, the Cox's orange pippin is one of my favorite apples, but it's like the pip in every pippin knows the moment to split. And it's that, that sense that, that, that there is in fact the inaction of time, like the theater of time in the natural world everywhere. And also in us is that, you know, that we know psychologically that one hour is not the same as another. And that what, you know, in a very kind of blunt sense, you know that what you could do, what you could do in an achievement sense in one hour in the morning, for example, would take you four hours late at night. But it's also that, you know, that, 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 that time has a quality of elasticity, social time has a quality of elasticity, that there's a sense of kind of social grace if you're not using a clock, if you're using the, the mood of a group of people. And that arguably the idea of understanding time when you're looking at it psychologically and socially and within nature is a much, much, much more complex, much more subtle way of understanding time than it is to say, well, what does this kind of, you know, what does this one brute instrument of clock time on the wall actually mean and there are some lovely phrases that um, that people have used for years to describe the, the duration of time that um, in English um, one of my favorite ways to describe time is uh, when people say, I'll do something in two shakes of a lamb's tail. And that's such a beautiful old-fashioned thing. And where I live in Wales, of course, kind of, you know, lambs everywhere in the spring. And that sense of just kind of like this little kind of like wiggling, excited kind of flurry of 
moment is so perfect. Also, in um, the his, historically in English, there used to be a, a, a term "pissing while," which to mark a fairly short but sort of rather indeterminate length of time. Um, there's also in Madagascar you can talk about a very quick moment, which is in the frying of a locust, um, and all of these things you can sort of see the the enlivenment of time, and that you know that when um, that when in the, um, the the bushmen of the Kalahari, they talk, they don't schedule, they don't plan when to go hunting, but they say they're waiting for the moment to be lucky. And what I'd say is that you know you could look at that and say yes, but these are people kind of without without technology, without clocks, without our sense of schedule and calendar and plans. But I would also say you could say that this is a culture that has something that is too often lost, is they've got a real sensitivity to the world around them, to the animal world, to the world of each other. It's like, is this really a good moment to go hunting if somebody's just got themselves into a really bad mood, may make bad decisions? That There is something of incredible sophistication that goes on. It's not just that you know some cultures have a, a, a loss or a la lack of technology and other cultures do. But it's also, I think, in oneself and again, that you know what Lewis was talking about, about you know, private time and public time, is that I think that kind of sensitivity to one's own eternities is a, a very, very subtle, sophisticated thing. I was thinking the other day about um, one of my own favourite ways to just step for a second into eternity is, um, this sounds like hippie nonsense, but I promise you it actually works, is if you just wait until there's a moment, and ideally a very ordinary moment, and it could be stroking a cat or it could be just looking at a friend's face and thinking how much you care about their face or it could be just pausing on one word that you know is so lovely and in the depth of that you could just think to yourself I wish this moment could last forever and just in the thinking of it it does. You step from this kind of often sort of clock-ridden, time-driven momentness for the moment into an eternity. Well, I, I, I'm content to let it rest right there. And, and, uh, <laughs> and my own part, I, I, to me, time is simply being. Uh, it's almost, and somebody asked me to define God, I would say God was time and time was God. And being and that's all there is and so on. But the, uh, but we can take questions. We, we, we have, I'm told right, Kelly, we have 15 minutes if, if people, if people want, want, want to ask questions. And, and when you ask the question, direct it to either Jay or, or uh, um, Jim. Uh, Well, <laughs> well, Jay, Jay, no, Jim, maybe, I, I think, you know, you, you've written Why Does the World Exist? I mean, right. I mean, I, I mean reincarnation I find is a recreation of a world, right? Right. 
So there's one sense in which, um, I mean, you know, in, in, in the most trivial sense, I, uh, the problem with reincarnation is that it's pretty clear that, that our identity is rooted in the organic structures of our brain, and, you, and when our brain is destroyed, there's no way our self can survive. Right. I mean, if you look at somebody, you know, uh, uh, you know a child's pr you know, a bit of brain damage, then the child will have a completely different character. If someone is uh, undergoing Alzheimer's disease, you can see as the brain deteriorates, the self disappears pari passu. So, and there, you know, there have been ways around that. William James, the great uh, American uh, philosopher and pragmatist of the late 19th, early 20th century, said, "Well, maybe the brain is like." a radio receiver. And what's really essential about us is sort of out there, and the, it's being received by the brain. And when the brain starts to fall apart, it's like you know, pulling a tube out of the radio. It, it, it gets kind of wonky and it starts squealing, but the signal is still out there. Um, and there are a lot of people who, who take the notion of the soul that can survive bodily death very seriously. There's also a, you know, a sort of a terrible possibility that the, this universe is is actually eternal, and there are models where it's cyclic. And uh, tediously enough, we're all going to be recreated an infinite number of times. We've already existed an infinite number of times in the past. And this was an idea that haunted Nietzsche, for example. Um, and um, we're going to live not only this life infinitely many times, but every variation of this life infinitely many times, which sort of makes our choices meaningless, because why should I agonize and struggle and do the right thing if there are going to be infinitely many versions of me also doing the right thing and infinitely many doing the wrong thing? Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that you know, the idea of a soul is one way of escaping time into eternity. I, you know, I'm an atheist, but I have uh, intellectually respectable friend, friend, friends who believe that at the moment of death, you do escape into a sort of timeless existence or eternity. And um, uh, I can't, you know, it's, to me, my sense of self, the essence of my being is so tied up in being caught in time that I can't even imagine what it would be like to say this being that exists in eternity is actually me. Um, and that's where, you know, where I run out of coherent thoughts. Uh, well, I oddly I find myself. I, yeah, I, I oddly find myself agreeing with the last part of what you said, which you know that sense of um, you know the the you know the self continuing into eternity. Because I, I I turn it slightly around the other way that question and say that for me it's it's almost a matter of where does the self start and where does the self stop, and that actually if you include the fact that you know that that in every human life, that human life has effects and influences on other people, that those influences kind of ripple out, that, you know, that I don't really find myself feeling totally separate from where I live, from the, you know, from from the land where, you know, where I live. I don't find myself feeling totally separate from my friends. I don't find myself feeling totally separate from a wider sense of community and a natural world, and all of you know, and all of these things. So, in that sense, you know, that that without you know, and I don't, you know, I'm not religious, but I do care about the human spirit. And I think that one of the things that to me is really comforting is to think, well, it's not so much that we die as life as a whole carries on, and we've kind of like carried our ripple, like each of us is a kind of messenger for a while. And leaving and leaving effects and leaving ripples. 
You're going to have to speak loudly. Um, one of my favorite passages on time is another book called Kana. And he, he says, I think, something like, we end up by being unable to think about time without reference to physical motion. And then he frames, and then he frames time really as a metaphor and suggests that if it flows, then it flows through something, then it's flowing through space, and he ends with something eloquent, like we have a metaphor flowing along a yardstick that we've, and what I like about the passage is that it kind of frames time as a metaphor, as, as Lewis, as you were suggesting, as something that changes, our, our meaning of time changes over time. And I'm curious, Jay, particularly based on what I understand your writing to be about, um, using the idea of what metaphors are good for us to think. Um, I think you, we, you've referenced a couple of metaphors in your conversation, memory, causality, flow, whether there are certain metaphors that have proved useful to think time, but also in what contexts time proves to be a useful metaphor for us as humans to use to think about existence, about society, about our lives. Well, actually, I mean, in all sorts of cultures, the, um, the, the metaphor as time as water is really powerful that kind of, you know, that the, the ocean has often been understood as representing eternity, that rivers in, you know, in cultures in the Amazon and kind of Euro European cultures, that rivers as the flow of time. It's an incredibly common idea that the word time and tide are etymologically related, which I really like. And that, and that idea of, you know, something which is, um, the, the word current is like something which refers to both ocean presentness of like, you know, the now of the, of the, of, of the moment. Um, and also, you know, you know, so it's kind of time and water. And it's almost like, you know, that possibly that is one of the strongest metaphors because it's, um, it's one of the most sort of open-minded of metaphors. That it isn't kind of, you know, and, and also that it's an, un, it's an unruled metaphor. It's a wild metaphor. I'm a great believer in metaphor. Anyway, I mean, there's a fine book by a man named Curtis White called The Science Delusion. And he takes on the argument between science on the one hand and religion on the other. And then he says, but really the third way is to think, of, think in terms of metaphor. And, and think so that, to me, that is the, when I'm trying to find an answer to what is time, I, I'm, I'm much more drawn to the answers that will come out of poetry rather than the ones that will come out of numbers. Or, or a scientific uh, equation. And, and that's the way I would, that's the way I do understand it. Yes? Uh, yeah, um, look, in the societies which uh, think of themselves as advanced, people are living longer. Uh, but this poses a problem about their disposal of, uh, their disposal of time or their attitude to time. Uh, the past is distant, uh, ever more distant, like a receding, like the universe which is receding, sorry, the end of which is receding. They can't control the future because that's in the hands of um, newer uh, generations. Uh, they lose touch. Uh, I'm 88 and writing an interminable memoir and wasn't much helped by the New York editor who said, your trouble is you didn't die at 60. Um, <laughs> 
but it is a trouble, and um, uh, what are we going to do about it? Hmm? <laughs> I think you deserve a round of applause. <laughs> got a television. <laughs> I, I, I think that time, well, my reaction to that is that time becomes so quick in, in maybe not in movies, but in television, but this, you get it to the sound bite and, and a scene that in the movies of 1940s would have maybe taken, you know, a ship at sea uh, sinking or in a storm, that scene in a 1940s movie could have taken 20 minutes. And today it would be, you know, 30 seconds. And the, so to me, when, when time is speeded up to that degree, it becomes to, to me meaningless. Uh, I'm not interested in that. I, I don't like it. Uh, th that to me is what happens with television advertising. It becomes... Uh, empty. Uh, it, it just becomes a, a kind of thing to consume and waste. And, and I'm giving my time to an idiot machine. I mean, that, that's the way I feel about looking at advertising. And the, uh, so I, I can only uh, have a sense of time when I, when I, when I read, or, or I can find it in a in a in a um, in a book, or I can find it in the way that the exhibition on this uh, second floor does it, which is it gives it it, it gives it uh, meaning and uh, and being. When I, when I um, came down here today on the um, Acela. Um, from New York, uh, when I got on, there was uh, there were a couple sitting across the aisle from me, uh, uh, wearing uh, uh, sort of uh, all in khaki and a blue blazer and so forth. And, and the guy was um, had a book, and he was immersed in the book for the entire three hours in the quiet car, which is you know the closest thing I know to terrestrial paradise. And it was it was Bleak House. He was reading Bleak House the whole time, and he and and, and that to me that was a, sort of a beautiful image of timelessness because everyone else was you know, manipulating their devices and so forth, and were plugs in. And this guy was just reading Bleak House for three hours in the quiet car of the Acela, moving it probably pretty close to the speed of light. That's a fast train. <laughs> um, and I, I just thought that was beautiful. But by the way, it is true that, that if you're moving fast, time flows more slowly. You, it, it, you, I mean, that one way of living for a long time relative to other people is by moving around as fast as you can, close to the speed of light. So it's interesting, photons, Photons, particles of light, which move always at the speed of light, uh, they, they, for them, it's still the moment of the Big Bang. They don't have any passage of time at all. So we should all aspire to be photons. <laughs> well, isn't it doesn't <laughs> But isn't, what's that guy, Kurzweil, 
the singularity, isn't, isn't oh, yeah. that more or less? He thinks he's like, going to live forever, by the way. As a proton, though. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, more or a combination of protons. No, he thinks he's going to live as a, Ray Kurzweil is one of the, um, uh, his, actually his mother was Edith Kurzweil, who's one of the partisan review crowd. I so didn't he know has, that. yeah, deep intellectual antecedents. But he's, he was involved in the MIT artificial intelligence world, and he believes that the, uh, the singularity, which is the point at which our intelligence will merge with machine intelligence, is just over the horizon. And once we reach the singularity, we can scan our brains and download the software of the brain, which is you know, the essential self, into a computer and then make lots of copies. And then we can exist you know, forever. So Kurzweil, he's worried that the singularity might be a little bit too far in the future, so he takes 60 vitamin pills a day. And, and he thinks that actually if you, free, if you freeze your brain when you die, it may be that in 20 or 30 years, uh, nanobots, these little you know, sort of nanotechnology robots, can come in and repair all the damage caused by the cryogenic process. And then they can down you, or upload you into a computer. So there are all these people who really have serious fantasies of <coughs> immortality. And it goes on into the you know, distant epics into the future. We re-embody ourselves in the form of black clouds, which are positron, electron clouds, which may be what Kurt Kurtzweiler, you were thinking of. And so the question is, could we, could we, I mean, maybe that kind of immortality would be a living hell. I mean, could you live with yourself forever? Uh, I mean, just the sheer tedium of it, it makes you want to sort of, you know, open your vein in a bathtub tonight. Uh, so, you know, finitude is bliss. Yes, all right, yeah. You've got to speak louder, I'm sorry. You mentioned the time in the uh, forest and where the kingfishers lived. Have you done any research on uh, how kingfishers and other birds and other creatures are seen? The whole discussion that I've been thinking of in the center. And uh, I know that I've done a lot of research and writing about birds. And they seem to see time very differently than humans. I haven't directly, but um, but 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 I think you're absolutely right. That kind of thing of you know what other creatures' perceptions are like. There's that that um, it's that lovely Browning line about the thrush that sings its song twice over. Um, so it's, it's lest we lest we think he never could quite recapture that first fine careless rapture, um, and you, you know yes the 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 kind of that time is going to be different for you know for 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 all creatures compared to us, and that you know that just as there are huge variations in the way that one person experiences a time compared to another person, it's like one creature compared to another creature is a whole new ballgame. Um, I'd be very interesting to know what your research has come up with. 
My name is Samantha Schroeder and I was supposed to intern on your intoxication issue, but unfortunately I was offered a journalist position in DC, so thank you for coming to DC. Um, my question is regarding Kairos and Kronos. Because I have a job, I haven't been able to pour through your wonderful time issue in its entirety yet. Um, have, has any, have any of your contributors discussed the Greek conceptions of time, Kairos and Kronos? Um, do you guys have any words on that? Yes, I, I've written about that. The, the sense of um, chrono, chronological time and chronos being the sort of, you know, the idea of clock time, it's kind of regular time, it's predictable, it's public, it's exterior. Chirological time is more the sort of, you know, the sense of the um, the feeling of the moment, the significance of the moment, the, the um, um, I'm not quite sure how to describe it now I've started, but that sense of like, you know, that, that time has character that it's not just this sort of, you know, this this mechanical thing. So yes, I, I have discussed it. Well, with that, thank you very much. I mean, the, uh, 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 I just wanted to say that when I started this job, a professor of mine said to me, the most precious thing anyone has left is the time that they have left on earth. Your work is to encourage people to invest it wisely. So I thank you for investing with us tonight and please join us once again in thanking Jay Griffith, Jim Holt, Lewis Lapman. We'll see you on the other side. <laughs> <laughs>